I'll hold it nearby. Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 to 33. It's page 15 on the church Bible. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sins so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, What if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Thank you, Linda. Mike. Well, good morning. Oh, we have sound good. Um, we come now to the second sermon in our series on prayer. Uh, last week, Barry was talking about why we pray. Today, I'm going to be talking about when we pray. But before we start, 
if you've got your Bibles to hand, um, will be useful because we're going to use them a lot during this. But first of all, could I ask you to turn to Acts chapter 9, uh, which you'll find on page 124 of the Church Bibles. And we're reading verses 10 to 19. We've already heard Linda reading how Abraham prayed, he talked to God, and how he reasoned with God or argued with God that what God was about to do wasn't quite right and how it would go on. This one is something similar. So Acts 9 verse 10. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus called Saul. At this moment, he's praying, and he's seen in a vision a man called Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up, was baptised, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Right. I'll just say, don't put your Bibles down. Um, You will be using them, hopefully, as we go through this. Okay, so, when do we pray? When I was a student, there was a book published about evangelism, which was called Evangelism Now and Then. And it compared present-day attitudes to evangelism and approaches to evangelism with the attitude and the approach of the early church. And one of the author's comments was that evangelism was something that the present-day church seems to do now and then, rather than being a basis for everyday activity. And when I was preparing this, sort of nagged at the back of my mind... Is this something we could also say about our prayer lives? It's something that happens now and then. It's not the continual praying that we're called to do. I'm sure, if nothing else, I'm sure like me, your prayer life doesn't fully represent that exhortation to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5. So I'm going to look at when we should pray. And I'm going to look at it under two, two headings. Circumstances, I what should what sort of events, what sort of activities, what sort of situations to drive us to prayer, and then time. Um, We've already seen very nicely, thank you Barry for that sketch, some of the thoughts about timing, as well as positions and other interesting knots you could tie yourself into. And I'm going to do it by looking at a number of biblical characters, as I said, who are going to pray. It will be a skim over. I think most of the examples I'm going to pick, you could probably preach at least one, if not two or three sermons on. You'd be pleased to know I'm not planning to fit them all into the next next few minutes. But let's start with circumstances. 
What makes people want to pray? Think about your own prayer lives. When are you most likely to be praying? And I think most people would say, when things have gone wrong. You know, that old saying, there's no atheists in a foxhole. Things are dangerous, I'm going to be praying. It may be personal circumstances. It may be family or financial issues. Or something larger and much worse. Think of all the natural disasters, the wars, the conflicts we see around the world. If all else fails, and sometimes it is when all else has failed, and our circumstances are threatening to overwhelm us, that's when people turn to prayer. Sorry, getting carried away. Think about Job. He went from fabulously wealthy to impoverished, virtually in a day. He was bereaved the same day. His family, seven sons and daughters, were killed in a, in a house collapse. And then not long after, he got afflicted with painful sores from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. When he's thinking of that time, or in the thinking of that time, and as we see when you look at most of his friends and they're trying to comfort him, the thought was, if that happened to you, you had done something wrong and God was punishing you for your sin. But Job lived a righteous life. It tells us that repeatedly. In Job 1.1, it says, Job was a righteous man. At the end of the chapter, it says, Job didn't sin by cursing God. The same at the end of chapter 2. Job didn't understand why the disasters had befallen him, why God was apparently against him. But he was prepared to to ask God the question, to see what he'd done wrong. And you can see that prayer in Job chapter 13, verse 20, right through to 14.22. He wasn't brief. It wasn't as a quick Lord. You know, it was serious praying. And in chapters 38 to 41, God responded to him. Perhaps not the way he was expecting, because he actually got a quiz and asked about his, you know, did he understand what God was doing, how God was doing it. But from that, Job gained a far greater understanding of God, and he entered into a new relationship with God based on knowing him directly. At the end of, or the early part of chapter 42, Job said, I've heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He'd gone from God being perhaps head knowledge, theoretical knowledge, to actual experience because he prayed. Or what about David? If you look at 1 Samuel 20 and on, David was being persecuted by Saul. Saul knew that David was, like, was going to be the next king, and he'd already tried to spin him to the wall with a spear a couple of times. He kept hunting him. And eventually, David ran away and ended up in the Philistine city of Gath, working for King Akshish. And if you look at chapter 20, 1 Samuel 21, somebody recognized him. He was identified as the man who had commanded Israel's army against the Philistines. The man who the Israelites sang had slain tens of thousands of Philistines. Were Saul only slain thousands. He realized he was in danger and he ended up feigning madness to escape. There is an interesting book which um, we used at a house group in a previous church which actually looks at David's life through the Psalms that he wrote at the relevant points. And one of the comments was, well, should he have put himself in that situation? When he ran away initially, had he prayed about what he should do or should he have stayed there? That doesn't matter at this point. 
The point was, when he was in that danger, he prayed. And if we look at Psalm 56, and this is just the first four verses of it, you can see the prayer he he wrote down at that time. Be gracious to me, Lord, because people are trampling on me. Where am I? I... O Most High, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. He prayed about his situation. He was rescued from his situation. Even Jesus prayed when he was in extreme situations. But with Jesus, we get, the, we get a view of his, of his praying. And look at some of the things he prayed. In Gethsemane, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. As somebody who was not only God, but also fully human, he was looking at the prospect of being crucified with dread, as we all would. And he prayed about it. He didn't want to go through with it, but he wanted to put God's will before his natural desire. And then, the next day, as the Romans were actually nailing him to the cross... Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You know, you couldn't think of a much worse situation to be in. But he was praying for other people. He wasn't praying for himself. We may not face the same sudden and disastrous change in our fortunes that Job faced. We may not face death for following Jesus. But when circumstances are against us, do we pray? Is that what needed, is needed to make us pray sometimes? Is it God having to back us into a corner to talk to him? And I think you probably all at times would say there's been occasions when that is the case. And how do we pray? When we're driven to that point, are we praying for ourselves? Are we self-focused, my situation, my problem, my pain? Or are we praying for God's will to take place and for put others first the way Jesus did? Then how about when we don't understand what God's doing? When we're called, what we're called to do is be obedient. But when we don't understand, when we can't see quite what God is doing or what we think we see it but it doesn't seem right, we should pray. Some of our lack of understanding is literally that. We lack understanding, we lack the spiritual wisdom to see what's going on. James, in his letter, said, if you lack wisdom, ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. But God doesn't mind honest and genuine questioning. There is a difference between questioning because I want to get out of it and questioning because I don't understand. Given that we're this soon after Christmas, think about Zechariah and Mary. If you look at the two accounts of them being told what was going to happen, they both said virtually the same thing. But Mary believed and wanted to understand the how and the why, Zechariah didn't believe and got dealt with accordingly. But we just, Linda's just read for us the story of Abraham and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham challenged God because it didn't seem right. Shall not the judgeable the earth do what is just? If you're going to kill the righteous people with the unrighteous people, surely that's not right. And no, God listen to him. He didn't put Abraham in his place say, I'm God, your people, I'm doing it. He listened. He responded. He set limits on when he would destroy the city. The only thing I could say you possibly, you could possibly say about Abraham in that prayer session is he stopped too soon. He stopped at 10. If you look at the passage, 
How many righteous people were there in Sodom? Well, the angels called six out. Lot and his wife, his two daughters and his two daughters' fiancés. The two fiancés thought, thought Lot was joking and didn't bother going. The other four ran away. Lot's wife looked back when she was told not to and turned into a pillar of salt. But six people. Abraham was four short of saving the city. If he kept praying a little bit more, perhaps. And remember, of course, this. God doesn't want people to perish. He doesn't want us to perish. He's giving people a chance to repent. In that circumstance, wouldn't Abraham have been praying? Wasn't Abraham praying in line with God's will? The righteous to live, people to have a chance to repent. Sorry, I'm getting carried away. Jonah was another one. He didn't like what God was doing. He was told to go and preach to Nineveh, the Assyrian capital. Assyria, the nearest equivalent in reputation to Nazi Germany. They conquered the world. If you didn't surrender when they turned up at your city, your leaders were flayed, then they were impaled. Both of them would kill you, but they did both just to make sure. They piled their enemies' skulls in great heaps. You, did, you submitted or you died. That was their choice, pretty much. Not nice people. So what did Jonah do? God says, go to Nineveh. He didn't was that way. He went that way. Got on a ship and headed for Spain. <laughs> Going for Tarsha. And God had to stop him. If you look at the book of Jonah, of course, we all know the story from Sunday school. There was the storm. Jonah got thrown in the sea. He was swallowed by the fish. And in the fish, back to the difficult circumstances, he prayed. He ended up in Nineveh. And what happened? He preached like he was told to. The population repented. And God didn't destroy it. We can see that in Jonah 3.10. And then Jonah 4. How does, how does Jonah respond? Well, to be quite honest, he's like a, like a toddler having a tantrum. He has a real strop about it. He complains to God. I knew you were going to do this. Why couldn't you just kill me instead? But look how God treats him. Jonah was honest in his prayer. He doesn't get punished for his outburst. Instead, God provides a plant that grows up to shade him when he's sitting outside the city waiting to see what happens. And then he provides a worm that eats the plant. So Jonah gets the sun again. And he shows Jonah through those how he has compassion on all those people, all those people in, in Nineveh. The book of Jonah ends with a question, and there's no definitive answer on, on the end of that. But Jonah clearly learns more about God because he challenged, because he was honest in prayer, than if he just sat there and sulked, which he could have done. And again, when, how, when we've sinned, probably the hardest time to pray, yeah, it's not so bad if it's a small sin, but any small sin tends to accumulate if we're not careful. David really went off the rails when he saw Bathsheba taking a bath. If you look at 2 Samuel 11. First of all, David shouldn't have been in his palace at all. It says that at the beginning of the chapter. It was spring, the time when kings went to war. David's army was off on a campaign. His general was leading it, but where was David? Kings go to war in those days. David's at home in his palace. He wasn't even busy. If you look at the, the account there, he'd been on his couch, lounging around until the evening when he went up on the roof. When he saw Bathsheba 
having her bath, he should have turned away, should have gone down from the roof. He certainly shouldn't have stayed and watched. And he definitely didn't have to send some, for someone and say, who is she, where did she come, and bring her into the palace. But because he did all those things, he ended up committing adultery, he got her pregnant, and then he tried to cover it up by calling her husband Uriah home from the war. And when Uriah, because he was a soldier in active service, wouldn't go home because his colleagues wouldn't, David had Uriah murdered. He sent a letter by the hand of the man he's trying to kill, really nice, to Joab, his general, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set him in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then pull back from him, so he's struck down and dies. And David didn't seem to realise how bad that was. He was quite happy. He took Bathsheba in, he married her. The child was born. And without that, at all that time, he wasn't repentant, he wasn't recognising it. And in the end, God sent the prophet Nathan to him. And when David was, while David was forgiven, when he repented then, he was told the, tar, the child would die. And he prayed for seven days, fasting, lying on the floor, to the point where his courtiers thought that, actually, they were scared to tell him the child had eventually died, in case he committed suicide, I think was, the, was their thought. But we can see how David felt about it in Psalm 51, which is the one he wrote at that time. Again, just a few verses from it there. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgression and my sin is ever before you. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David prayed when he realized what he'd done wrong, and we should do the same. And then what happens if God calls us to do something? Well, this might happen in many ways. It might be a direct instruction, like, such as Abraham got when he was called to go to Canaan. It could be God intervening with this through his spirit, as when Paul was stopped going from Asia and Bithynia in Acts 16. It could be God moving us by circumstances or a situation we've heard or seen. And in some cases, the instructions might seem odd. Think about Philip, one of the original deacons. He had been in Samaria, there was a fantastic mission going on, people were being saved, they were, being, they were growing in the faith, and when you'd expect the Holy Spirit to say, yeah, keep going, do more of the same, the Spirit says to him, go out into the desert. So, all these people being saved, out in the desert, no people. Why, Lord? But when he got there, he met the Ethiopian eunuch, that man was converted, and took the gospel down into Ethiopia, which wouldn't otherwise have happened. In some cases, we might get instructions that seem odd, as I said. It might take us outside our comfort zone. It might be to go overseas to work in a developing country, either for short term or long term. It might be to give up something we're doing now and do something new. It may be to change job, to stop one activity in the church, and that could be either us as individuals or us as a church, and do something new, something different. The church in Antioch faced that in Acts 13, verses 1 to 4. They were fasting and worshipping when God said to them, set aside Saul and Barnabas for the work that I've got for them. If you look at that passage, it says in the church, there were five leaders. So God has suddenly taken half the leadership team away. 
So what did the church do? They prayed and they fasted some more. <laughs> they weren't praying that the men wouldn't go. They were praying more likely that they would be equipped for the service ahead, that the field of work would be prepared for them, for the success of what they're being called to do, and possibly for God to raise up more leaders so that they could send them out as well. They were making sure they were aligned with God's plan and, the, and his will as they laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them out, which you can see in the last few verses. Of course, it's not always quite that straightforward. Just read you the story of Ananias. I've long had sympathy for this guy. I can imagine him praying over the years of being a Christian. Lord, I really want to do something for you. I want to be used by you. Please use me. And God calls him and says, right, go and lay hands on a man. Okay, Lord. Sorry, Lord, did you say Saul? Is that Saul, the emissary of the Sanhedrin? Saul, the man who's persecuting the church and dragging the believers off to jail and to death? Is that Saul, the man who approved the stoning of Stephen? who was the, another one of the first deacons and the first Christian martyr. So what did Ananias do? He prayed. He took his questions and confusion to God. And, he, and because he did, he was given a glimpse of what God planned and therefore went out with that knowledge. And Saul, the persecutor, became Paul, the apostle. Try to imagine what the church would have been like if Ananias hadn't been obedient, if Paul hadn't been sent out from Antioch in the previous one, if the Bible was missing most of the book of Acts and all of Paul's letters and the teaching in there, the teaching that's instructed and blessed the churches down through the ages and still speaks to us today. Part of praying is having that conversation with God, seeking his will and his perspective on a situation. That way, even when humanly speaking, we might see something as risky, as dangerous, as a dead end, as a loss to us, we can see ultimately how God will make it into a profit. And when we don't know where we're going, where we need to seek guidance from God, then we need to pray as well. That's not where our options are spelled out in the Bible. You know, there are some things which are clearly laid down as commands. Being baptised is one of them. You know, there's that clear instruction, make believers, make disciples, baptise them. But sometimes things aren't. What job should I do? Who should I marry? These are things that aren't so clear, and we need to be careful here. One thing it's very easy to do when we're praying about that is decide our course of action and then pray that God will bless it. Which is fine if we happen to choose the right mode, but sometimes it can get very frustrating if we're praying for X and God actually says, no, 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 it's Y, but we're not listening. We're too busy saying, please, Lord, make it X. David learned that lesson, or had learned that lesson. If you look at 1 Samuel uh, 30 and 29, in David had been working for the Philistines for some time, living in a city called Ziklag, and basically being part of their mercenary force. And he used to go out and raid, and he would raid the local people, but then he would tell the Philistines that he'd raided the Israelites. So they were quite happy with him, because clearly he'd made himself obnoxious to his own people. But then the Philistine army gathered all from all the cities to go and fight the Israelites, and some of the kings sort of looked at David and said, hang on, he's a Hebrew. We've got Hebrews in our army when we go to fight the Hebrews. That isn't a good idea. Send him away. But when he got home, 
And you'll see it in 1 Samuel 30, 1 to 6. The city had been sacked. Raiders had come in. His families, their wives, the children, the possessions had all been stolen. The city had been burned down. And his men were close to stoning David because of the loss of their families. Now, rather than do the the obvious thing, I'll make my followers happy, we'll go after them. David prayed. He sought guidance from God. You'll see that in verse 7 and 8 as to what he should do. And in the end, the guidance was, follow them, you'll get everyone back, which he did. But he prayed first. He didn't just jump in and react. What about Jesus? He prayed for guidance. If you look at the temptations he had while he was in the wilderness, about 40 days and 40 nights, he was seeking guidance there for the way to run his ministry. How was it going to work? Making his relationship was right with God. And Satan took that and tried to turn it against him. You'll also see, if you look at Luke 6, verse 12, he prayed all of the night before he chose his 12 disciples. One of the most important decisions he made many ways but he prayed about it and made sure that he did it right and then we've got the situations when we look at the situations in the world we're sometimes at a loss as to how we should respond the ongoing conflicts in the Middle East and Africa the consequences of national disasters political uncertainty and challenges that we face in our country at the moment even health and employment difficulties by faced by family by friends and fellow believers. How do we respond? Well, on our own, there's not a lot we can do about some of these. We certainly can't go and create peace in in the Middle East. But we can pray. We can ask God for his intervention and his resources for the situation. Now, said situations vary. But as an example of this, let's actually look at John 6, the feeding of the 5,000 which wasn't actually 5,000, it was 5,000 men, so it was probably fifteen to 20,000 people, weary, hungry, and Jesus turned to the disciples and said, feed them. Where are they going to find food for so many people or the money to buy it? They were at a loss. But they took what they could find to Jesus for him to use. Now I have to say, praying in these circumstances can be very dangerous. Because God may well turn around and say, you're praying, you're part of the answer. He may lead us to give our money, our material possessions, our time, or our skills. If we're talking about situations in overseas world, the call could be, right, give up what you're doing here in the UK. Go there, and you work in that situation. But just as Jesus expected the disciples to find out what resource they had and bring them to him, he does the same with us. And look how much more those few bread buns and a few small fish achieved in Jesus' hands than they would have done feeding one small boy who brought it as his packed lunch. We can expect God to do the same with what we give him. As as, um, Jesus said in Luke, give and it'll be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over what you put in your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. Praying is the first part of that. The church in Jerusalem also turned to prayer when Peter was arrested by Herod. And you can read this one in Acts 12. 
they gathered together and prayed for an extended period. Peter was arrested before the Passover and he was scheduled to be executed after the Passover. God stepped into the situation by releasing Peter from jail because the church was praying. The passage in Acts, well, I mean, to be honest, if you made a comedy film of it, nobody would believe it. But it was real. The jailers didn't notice the cells suddenly filling with light or an angel standing there. They didn't hear the clank as Peter's chains fell off. They didn't see their prisoner get up and walk out. They didn't notice the jail doors opening to let him out into the city. And then there's the church. So busy praying for Peter's release that he's there banging on the gate, probably watching over his shoulder for Herod's men coming to get him. And what are they doing? Well, the first person knows he's there is the maid, who was probably a young girl, who hears his voice and runs and tells people, but forgets to open the door. And then the people who are praying, think, well, it can't be Peter, it's his ghost. He can't, you know, he can't be, he's in jail. <laughs> you know, let me in, please. Making the effort to pray, though, particularly when it comes to bad weather, perhaps, or we've got other things on, to join with other Christians is not always our preferred activity. Like the Christians at Mary's house, they weren't necessarily expecting what they were praying for. Do we find it difficult to pray because our expectations are wrong? We're not expecting God to work on, on that result. It's easy to find amusement in the situation at the church in Jerusalem. And I've heard so many people make much the same uh, comments that I've just done. But let's be honest, the church was there. The church were together. The church had been together praying for days before that situation. How well attended are our prayer meetings? How many take advantage of opportunities to pray at the home groups in open prayer sessions on a Sunday? How often do we pray for more than an hour at a time and then we think it's been a long time? Are we really expecting God to work in response to our prayers? In all the examples we've looked at so far, God has responded. Jesus told us we could ask for things in his name and God would give them to us. So John 14, 13 and 14. That doesn't mean adding, just adding in your name to the end of every prayer. But it means seeking to pray for things the way Jesus would have done and in his authority. If we seek God's will, look at situations from God's perspective in our prayers, both as a result of walking close to God, we can expect prayers to be answered. A few weeks ago, if you can remember back before Christmas, we looked at the privilege we've been given of being adopted into God's family. And part of that, we are part of God's family, we've been given his authority to use as he would have done and on his behalf. Are we prepared to pray to actually use that authority in what we pray for? And then the one which we do some of the time, Thanksgiving and praise. As we pray and we see God answering our prayers, are we spending time saying thank you? For those of us who are parents, we wouldn't be very happy with our children if they didn't say thank you when we did something for them, but they just came and asked for something else. Do we treat God that way when we pray? We're always asking. We're never saying thank you for what he's given us. Now, there are plenty of things we should be thankful for. And... Perhaps the other question is, how many of them have you said thank you for today? Think about the blessings you've had today from God. You woke up, must have done, because you're here. 
You had shelter, warmth, food. You have clean running water. You've got adequate clothing. You're able to come to church without fear of persecution. We have a church building around us that we can use in many ways to reach people for God. We've got the band who help us to worship in song. We've had Jesus. We've got Jesus who died for us to make us right with God. How much more? How can we not give thanks for all those things? But how often do we take them for granted? We're told to give thanks always and in all things. When the apostles were arrested and taken in front of the Sanhedrin in Acts 5, they were flogged. They were ordered not to speak in the name of uh, Jesus again. And how did they go out? Yes, their backs were sore. Their clothes were probably sticking to their wounds. Really kind of been very comfortable. Well, what were they doing? They were rejoicing because they'd been found worthy to suffer for Jesus. They were giving thanks and praising in that circumstance. Even if we watch the evening news without being flogged for it, shouldn't we be thankful that God has not put us in some of the situations that we see? But shouldn't we also be wanting to pray for those who are in those places, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ who will have to live there and witness there? And we should put time aside to enjoy God, to be with him, reflect on his character. Praise is effectively giving thanks to God for who he is and for his character. It's similar to thanksgiving, but it's not the same thing. It's distinct. It should be a result of the joy we have as Christians in the Holy Spirit. Praise is what mankind was created to do. And it's now our relationship with God has been restored through Jesus. We can fulfill that purpose. And we're actually called to rejoice in the Lord always, Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord all, rejoice in the Lord always. Say again, rejoice. So that's things that should make us pray. But what about when we pray in terms of time? Well, this is a shorter section, be pleased to know, because there is no one answer to this, and we can see many different things. There are some common threads though. First of all, prayer should be a common part of our lives as Christians. We all have many demands on our time and attention. We find it difficult to set aside time sometimes, but we should therefore set aside a regular slot. Daniel did this. If you look at chapters uh, 6, 1 to 10, this is the run-up to the lion's den story. Again, we all know it from Sunday school. Darius made made the decree. No one was to pray to anybody but him. So what did Daniel do? He went into his upper room. He opened the window that faced towards Jerusalem, and he prayed three times a day as he had done before, as was his custom. Daniel had a demanding and responsible job. He was responsible for 40 provincial governors and their areas, and he was in line to promotion to the top job and run run all 120 of them because he was so effective at his job. He obviously worked hard, but he made time in a busy schedule to go into a private place and pray, not just in the morning or the evening, but the morning and the evening and at lunchtime. He didn't see a potential death sentence as a reason for not carrying on. How much do we think it's important enough to make that time in, his, in our diaries to pray? And how much do we recognise that perhaps Daniel was effective at his job because he prayed, not he prayed to fit it in? Then we need to be persistent in prayer. In Nehemiah 1, verses 4 to 11, Nehemiah heard about the state of Jerusalem. The walls were broken down. It was a mess. And 
He mourned about it, he fasted, and he prayed for days. Something we tend to forget with Nehemiah, because we think of him as Nehemiah of the arrow prayer, the quick one-liner at the appropriate point. But he prayed extendedly as well. Or the early church. We've seen how they prayed for extended periods. We're just looking at the case with Peter and his arrest. It's important that we take that time to be persistent in prayer. If we really want something, let's keep praying for it until we get a clear answer. But let's not forget the opportunity prayers. These short arrow prayers are something that we can all do as we go about our everyday lives. When we have a conversation, when we meet somebody, when we encounter a situation that needs God's involvement, let's pray about it. Shoot a short prayer to God. You know, think about Nehemiah, which is the obvious one that was used. When did he do his arrow prayer? He was actually in a conversation with the king. It's not the sort of time when the king sat at his table, you're pouring him wine, and he asks you something, right, this is cute. I'm just going to get down on my knees and, and pray. He prayed, but it was very quick. He was given the opportunity to ask something for the king. How much of that opportunity to ask was a result of the persistent prayer beforehand? How much of his ability to answer that, as specifically as he did, if you look at the passage, was because he'd spent the time praying about it beforehand and bringing it to God? So let's make sure we're doing, we're persistent in our prayer. And then it's continual. Last week, Barry talked about prayer as a conversation. We saw the same thing again in some of the, uh, some of the uh, discussion in the, in the video and, of course, in, in the passages we've looked at. The prayer is a conversation between a person and God. We're pro- called to pray continually, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, to have that ongoing conversation throughout our daily activities. Some of it might be at set times, like you meet with your friends for a cup of coffee to chat, Some of it might be those short arrow prayers, the prayers of opportunities for others in an immediate conversational situation. But we need to cultivate the habits of prayer so that we make God much more a part of our lives at all times and not just Sundays and home group days. Enoch was a man who walked closely with God. You can read about him in Genesis 5, 21 to 24. So much... So closely did Enoch walk with God that God walked Enoch right out of the world. You can almost imagine Enoch walking and talking with God one day and God looking at him, oh, look, it's late. We're a long way from your home. Why don't you come home with me instead? That's the sort of relationship we were always intended to have with God, that continual walk and talk with him. We can see a shadow of how it was in Genesis 3 verse 8. Adam and Eve, this was just after the fall, Adam and Eve used to walk with God in the Garden of Eden. But after they'd eaten the fruit, Adam and Eve hid from God because they were scared. The majority of the human race is still hiding from God. But as Christians, we don't have to. Jesus has restored our relationship with God when he dealt with our sin on the cross. So the challenge for us, we're called to pray continue. We're called to pray in circumstances. How is your conversation with God today? How is my conversation with God today? Do we ignore him until we're in trouble or want something? Do we just run into his presence, come off with a list of requests and then shoot off to get on with our lives? Or are our prayers focused, or are our prayers focused on us or on others? 
Do we want to take time or do we take time to be with God and let him speak to us? And if the answer to those questions is challenging you, how do we change that today? And how do we change it through the rest of our lives so it, our prayer life is more part of our breathing rather than something that we bolt on the outside? Let's pray together.